0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to the All It Takes is a Goal podcast, the best place in the entire world, including all of Canada, to learn how to build new thoughts, new actions, and new results. I'm your host, John Acuff, and today I've got an awesome interview with an author named Mary Morantz. I was on her podcast a few weeks ago and immediately thought, Oh, she's doing some amazing things with goals. I need to interview her. I think you're going to love this episode. But first, today's episode is sponsored by Metashare. Have you guys ever had buyer's remorse? You know, that feeling of intense regret because the thing you thought you just had to have was only something you used once or twice. For me, it was the time I bought a really expensive road bike because I thought I was going to get into cycling. I proceeded to hang it on the wall in my garage and feel ashamed for six months. Well, I know some of you are experiencing buyer's remorse right now for something much more frustrating. You know what I'm talking about. It's the health care you rushed to get during open enrollment last December. Well, I have some good news for you. You have probably heard me talking about our main sponsor for this podcast, MetaShare, And these guys have the answer to health care buyer's remorse. Check this out. Members of MediShare save up to 50% or more per month on their healthcare costs. They say the typical family saves up to $500 per month. And here's the best part, you can become a member at any time. So that means it isn't too late to ditch your buyer's remorse and switch to a more affordable healthcare that will save you money and help you sleep better at night. If this is your first time you're hearing about MediShare, it is the best alternative to health insurance that allows you to share the burden of medical bills, offers access to 900,000-plus healthcare providers, and has a proven 25-year track record. Plus, in addition to saving hundreds per month as a member of MediShare, you will also have access to free telehealth and free telecounseling. You won't find that with any traditional health insurance provider. Guys, it only takes two minutes to see how much you could save. Go investigate that for yourself and your family at MediShare.com slash John. That's metashare.com slash John. Remember, John doesn't have an H in it. So it's M E D I, that's metashare, S H A R E, dot com slash J O N. All right, here's Mary's bio. Let me go ahead and jump into this because it's amazing. Mary Morantz grew up in a trailer in rural. West Virginia. Rural is a very difficult word. I once put that in an audio book and I had to change it to country because I couldn't say it well. I don't know if I said it well in her intro, but the first of her immediate family to go to college, she went on to earn a master's degree in moral philosophy and a law degree from Yale. After turning down a six-figure salary, law firm offers in London and New York and starting a business with her husband, Justin. Together, they have gone on to build a successful online education platform for thousands of creative entrepreneurs worldwide. Mary's also the host of the highly ranked podcast The Mary Morant Show which I've been on and was a blast which debuted in the iTunes top 200. She and Justin live in an 1880s fixer-upper by the sea in New Haven, Connecticut. That sounds lovely. With their two very fluffy golden retrievers, Goodspeed and Atticus. Um I'm those actually sound like hipster kid names. I don't think those are dogs at all. <laughs> And she's got a book that we're going to talk to her about today, amongst a bunch of other stuff called Dirt. So... Join me in welcoming Mary Maria to the podcast. Thanks for being here, Mary.
1: <laughs> and now all I'm doing is picturing my dog is hipsters, which is amazing. I feel like they'd wear little skinny jeans. <laughs> people name
0: their dogs Rusty. Like yeah. Goodspeed is a very <laughs> elaborate dog name.
1: Yeah. You know, so, okay, I want to tell you, because in Connecticut, where we live, there's an opera house called the Goodspeed Opera House. And most people say, oh, like the Goodspeed Opera House. It's actually Dr. Stanley Goodspeed from The Rock. Because oh. Sean Connery says, I'm sure you're familiar with etymology of your surname. Good speed, as in God's that's where it came speed, from. You came named from. your dog. Wow, that is a
0: real. Has anyone ever gone? Is this from The Rock? Has one anyone person. ever met one, one person.
1: person? Yeah,
0: that person is a wizard.
1: Yeah, that's right. We became instant friends. You would have
0: to. You would have good for you. I take it back. It's from The Rock, which no one would accuse of being a hipster
1: movie, no. <laughs>
0: no. Um, whatsoever. So I'm so glad you're here today. I think we're going to have a ton of fun. I've had the pleasure to be on your podcast. And it's always fun when you get to do each other's podcasts because you get to form a relationship and you get to ask a bunch of questions and you get to be on the other side of it. So when I was on your podcast, I immediately said, okay, I want to have you on mine because I think this is the start of a fun conversation. Yeah. So I want to start with, imagine you're at a dinner party and someone says, Mary, what do you do? Mm. How would you answer that question?
1: You know, what's really, really interesting is I've just turned in the manuscript for my second book. And it starts off with the scenario. It's talking about the inciting incident, this Sharpie through the calendar, as my friend Hannah Bruncher calls it, this before and after that sets off the action for the main character. And I said, trust me, if you are at a cocktail party among past champagne and miniature pigs in the blanket, you could say something like words, words of my friend. I write words. Sometimes people mm-hmm. read them or you could wax poetic about the inciting incident. And so I think I would do that. I would wax poetic about this and the before and the after, and we're all on the precipice of our after. And then I would say I write books for a living and sometimes people read them.
0: Now, so when you say you turned in a book, does that mean it got accepted or is this first draft?
1: This is we're going on to copy editing. So we share a publisher uh, yeah. as an umbrella publisher, Baker Publishing Group, and I actually have five books with them. So this is book that's two amazing. Of five. Yeah,
0: that's amazing. So you, this is a big deal. Like when you get the. Okay, it's moved on to copy editing. Like yeah. that's kind of it's locked and loaded. You're gonna, yeah. you know, you'll, they'll probably edit out a lot of your vulgarity, yeah. uh, a lot of swears. If <laughs> yeah. I had to guess, knowing yes. you, um, mm-hmm. but that's awesome. Congratulations.
1: Thank you. That's yeah, nice. there were cupcakes. I'm not gonna lie, there were you sh- There should be. Like that is a
0: <laughs> big moment. It's a moment I've only had seven times in my entire life. Like it's a big moment. So congratulations. Yeah. Which brings us to your your first book or your memoir, Dirt. Which I love the title. I've got a copy. Um. And you go on this wild journey from West Virginia, a West Virginia trailer home, mm-hmm. to Yale Law School. So what would you say are some of the hinge moments along that path? You just said inciting yeah. incidents. So the moments where you say, okay, and then the plot changed. And yeah. then the plot changed. Because most people don't assume, okay, trailer home in West Virginia, you end up at Yale Law School. Like some stuff has happened in between those two things. What were yeah. the moments that that really changed things?
1: You know, I've um, I've thought about that question kind of in reverse. Like if you think about all the dominoes falling, like what was the first domino that would have possibly tipped over? And as far back as I can trace it, and I talk about this in Dirt, I was four years old, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, as, as these stories start, I was four years old. The, there's an interesting parallel uh, narrative arc in Dirt between my dad's story and my story. We kind of flash between the two. And so, my dad and I ended up growing up in the same yard because the trailer got put on the back half of my grandma's property. We ended up going to the same tiny five-room elementary school where like grades, you know, third and fourth had to be in the same room to have enough room. And we were going to the same Sunday school. We were on this very same trajectory. I always say, you know, like not much has changed in a generation on the mountain where I grew up. And he saw that playing out. And so he decided that you know, he barely graduated high school and there wasn't a ton he could do in terms of education, but he knew that when he went to kindergarten, he had not been very well prepared for that. And he got a few questions wrong and got laughed at. And it burned into his brain, as little five-year-old him, that he was stupid, that he was not cut out for anything to go to college or go to school, that he was just a you know, in his words, "dumb old logger," and so at four years old, he started bringing these workbooks home from the like grocery store on the racks next to the bubble yum. They were like very dot matrix, child of the eighties, printing with like a picture of a kid, but it was made out of like ampersands and pound signs or whatever. And so the theory was, you would get these workbooks for your child for whatever grade they were about to go into, and you could get them in reading or math, and that was the expectation. But I say. J.R.B.S. was never big on expectations, and so he just kept bumping me up a grade after I finished them, so that between being four and nine months later when I started kindergarten, I was in a sixth grade reading and a fifth grade math.
0: That is amazing to me, and I loved hearing that story in the book. I'm curious... He obviously had a moment that said, okay, I I want you to be something more than I got to be. I'm Mm -hmm. sure that felt like a number of things, Um, like a slingshot in some regards. There's pressure there, too. Him believing in you and also believing in their opportunity. Like, what did that do for you?
1: Yeah, I mean… I think what you just said there, John, is so important is that there are two sides of this. There's the, somebody believed in you. Somebody said, you can go do anything you want to. You're going to have a different life than I did. That's a huge gift. You know, I do believe that words have the power to speak life or death, but there is that whole shadow flip side. And we start to get into things like the Enneagram of the mask you put on when you're little, you start to become aware of the world around you and things tell you, oh, so that's what I need to be in order to be loved. And for me, that became, I'm like, a 50-50 split between the, the achiever three and the individualist four, which essentially means appropriate for your show. Not only do I have to have goals, they have to be goals unlike any other goals anyone yeah, has ever yeah. your set Your goals have goals. Yeah. My goals have goals. Um, and so I think like the flip side of that, and that's been a big journey of my adulthood. I'm still working on it. It's a big part of what book two is about, is making peace with having goals and going after big things, but not achieving for your worth. Or for people to love you, and so you know, I, th- I think like that message became kind of clear: of the better you do, the more proud they are, which felt like the more they loved you. And so, I I literally had a worth attached to my achieving. When I was in grade school, I got paid for my grades. So an A plus got me five dollars, an A got me four fifty, an A minus got me four. And I very quickly learned if it was a C minus or the or below, I had to pay them. So there was oh, a cost okay. to being average.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know,
1: and um, oh, actually there was a post today from Adam Grant I saw that was talking about like the high rates of depression and anxiety among kids who go to the top colleges. And I left a comment and I was like, yeah, it's like that meme where all the gifted kids from grade school who are now the adults with anxiety. And I was mm-hmm. like raising my hand over here.
0: That's, a, that's amazing. I, I wonder about that. How you kind of process that going forward as an adult, because I I recently um, interviewed Greg McEwen, the author of Essentialism and Effortless, and his new book, Effortless, talks about having a like kind of a lower limit, like a bare minimum and an upper limit. So his example was he wanted to start journaling. So he said a minimum, I'm going to write at least one sentence a day. But then he said a maximum. I'm only going to allow myself to write five sentences a day. And he said most people, especially high performers, achievers, never set the maximum limit. And so they do three pages one day and none the next, and then it kind of goes all up and down. Mm -hmm. Have there been times in your adult life that you've said, okay, I've got the gas pedal so far down I feel, you know, thin emotionally, you know, I'm going to get stuck. I'm going to burn out. How do I pull back? Are there any places in your life where you set that upper limit? Because writing books, podcasts, you mentioned five books. You have a five book deal. Like that's a lot of books. Where are some upper limits you've set?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the first part of your question, like, have you ever felt a time when you were running really thin? I would say yesterday. <laughs>
0: yeah, right. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Way back yesterday. Oh, yeah, remember that day.
1: I, I have this really, I think it's a really important working theory. And that is that we don't give up achieving for our worth once and then we're done. We do it mm. like anything we become addicted to. It's one day at a time. And I've been working with a goals coach, Kim Butler from the White Boardroom for, we're starting our sixth year together. And I was so frustrated in the beginning because she was like really like hammering in the the fundamentals. Like, what are your daily personal goals? How much water are you going to drink? How much are you going to work out? Like, how many hours of sleep are you going to get? And I was like, I don't know. I have stuff to go do. And it really took me a very long time to embrace that if I was going to go anywhere far were for a long time, I was going to have to get right with that stuff. Because the thing they don't tell you about burnout, people think burning out is like coasting to the side of the road when you run out of gas. And it is not. It is like 90 miles an hour and you hit a brick wall yeah, and it hurts. And it takes a really long time to come back to that when you hit the bottom of the tank. So I would say those those are the first things I've started to put into place. But upper limits in terms of productivity... Uh, that might need to start happening in my life because I have not thought of it that way. I've yeah, it's it an it's interesting like concept. It kind of yeah. got
0: me like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like that one steps on my toes a little bit. Yeah, that's but right. let's jump back. You just said something interesting. So you have a goals coach. Mm-hmm. So I, I think most people, myself included, would go, wait, 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 what is, like, what is that? Like, yeah. how did you find a goals coach? Like, What does that process look like? Okay, you've been with her six years. So mm-hmm. walk us back six years and a day ago where you go, Mm -hmm. I think I might need a goals coach. What does that mean?
1: Yeah. So the way that I found her was that my friend, Hannah Bruncher, who I mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. the Sharpie mark through the calendar, um, who's an author and has just released, I think her third book. She had worked with Kim getting ready for her first book. And so she was kind of, Kim was presented to me as the coach that will actually make you make good on writing this book. And Mm -hmm. so I thought maybe she was like a writing coach. She's not, she doesn't actually like give feedback on the writing necessarily. She will, she will help me like whiteboard the concepts or like, if I'm getting stuck on something, we'll talk it through. But she's really much more interested in who Mary the human is and who Mm -hmm. I'm becoming versus what I'm achieving. And so uh, that's how I got the connection. I was speaking at the same conference that we spoke together years ago in Rome, Georgia. Yeah. Pursuit Conference and Kim drove up and in that main lobby at Windshape, there's a popcorn machine in the back corner and so we're sitting like tucked away hidden in this back corner an old-timey popcorn machine we're eating out of like the little like circus bags yeah kernels spilled out on the table between us salty tears you know the whole scene that's in the book and I'm basically saying to her that I just watched this very charming movie about um you know, doctor gets stuck and it. It's like a Doc Hollywood remake. It's got Candace Cameron Beret in it. It's amazing. And they're talking about pecan trees and how pecan trees left to their own devices will grow so many good things and hold on to so much of the fruit that they will literally split themselves in half. Mm. But if you're going to tend to a, pr- a pecan tree really well, you have to be an expert in pruning. And I said, I'm a pecan tree. I'm about to split in half.
0: Oh, gosh.
1: Yeah. That yeah. is so good. Yeah. So she spent some time pruning.
0: <laughs> What's the name of her company? So we can... If people yeah, aren't...
1: The Whiteboard Room. So she helps you whiteboard.
0: The Whiteboard Room. All mm. right. We'll make sure that we link that in the show notes too. Please. So what is? It, what are some of the things that she helped you prune? Because that that's the challenge right now. We live in a world that's never done. Like mm. you have a podcast. You could try to scale that podcast a thousand different ways. You have a social media platform, you have books, like there's no natural limit to the things you could do. Mm. So when you're kind of, okay, I'm stuck in a cycle of there's more, there's more, there's more, there's more. Like what does the pruning process look like?
1: Yeah. And I, I would just add to that, especially when some of these platforms are basically saying, I mean, I didn't see it personally, but through a friend passing it to a friend, passing it to a friend, I saw these new like guidelines for Instagram with like, seven reels a week and all this other stuff. And I'm just like, this is a full-time job just in and of itself. So you're right. You could spend your whole life doing it. So she really said about the first thing we started to rein in is like you mentioned in the intro, we had a digital, have a digital online program for creatives and we had all of these different courses that were having all of these different launches. And so we really kind of just went through and said, all right, 80-20, what are the ones that are giving us 80% of the results? What are the ones we should hone in on? Do we really need to launch this? You know, do you launch a quarter? Could it be a launch every other quarter? Or, you know, just like getting the most impact. So we just started like taking one thing away. And then, you know, I kind of, oh, you know, yeah, that's and, terrifying. It made yeah. me
0: sweaty here and you say that yeah, sentence. I
1: know. <laughs> I know. And then you take it away and and you realize, okay, that wasn't that big of a deal. And that actually made this other thing grow better. Like Mm -hmm. who knew pruning actually is a real thing, but, but she was really good. And she has a particular gifting for the patience of overachieving entrepreneurs who say they want this thing, but then they just pile it back on and and that tendency to create a vacuum and then fill it right back up. So she just kind of kept showing up, getting in my face saying, you know, you really said you wanted to do this this year and I don't see how you're going to do it when your calendar looks like this. Yeah, And so it's, I mean, it's a gift to have somebody be such a, an honest mirror. A hundred percent. And it's priorities. a gift that it's not
0: your spouse. Because I think yes. if you want to have <laughs> yes. amazing marital fights, try to hire your spouse as your goals coach. That's right. And let me know, let me know how that goes. Yeah. Let me, let me know how that goes. So we've talked a little about the book. When I read the book, your writing reminds me a lot of Sean of the South. Um, okay. Like the voice, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Mm-hmm. Look up Sean of the South, brilliant Southern writer. Um, You'll love his work. Um, Just your ability to tell a story, paint a picture, use words in in ways that really make you feel like you're there. Mm -hmm. The storm is rolling in and you're standing there and there's lightning. Who would you say are your writing influences? When you say, Mm -hmm. okay, oh, here's when I read so-and-so, that influences my voice or here's kind of like... Maybe I'd say it this way: Who's on your Mount Rushmore of writers? Yeah. So, like the four people that are on your Mount Rushmore of writers. Ooh, four. Okay. Um, And when you read Shaun of the South, you're going to be blown away.
1: You know what? Now that you say it, I feel like Caleb Peavy, who I think we both know, exactly said they work together. They work together.
0: Yeah, Yeah, you'll yeah, you'll love his stuff. All right. Um, But who's on your Mount Rushmore? I cut you off. I'm sorry.
1: Well, I feel like number one across the board, mostly because she was just one of the first people who I read one of her books and then I got the rest of them, is Shauna Nequist. I Uh, love Shauna's writing. Um, Very similar where you just feel like you're there with her. You're tasting the blueberries. You're feeling the salt air on your face. I had the gift of reading Blue Like Jazz in between draft one and draft two of Dirt. And I'd really been struggling with writing a memoir in particular because everything I read about Sophisticated memoirs said you were never allowed to acknowledge the reader was even there. Um, you just had to kind of tell your story. It is what it is. They take what they take. And I really wanted, I didn't want to necessarily like break the fourth wall to talk to them, but I did it, you know, at least want to sort of think aloud for them of these are some things that I was processing or taking from that. And Blue Like Jazz did that. And I was like, oh, you're, there's permission. You can yeah. do that. So that would be number two. And I feel like Anne Lamont at the same time. So Anne Lamott, Bird by Bird. Blue like Jazz were happening at the same time in my life. Um, gosh, number four. Ooh, I think it's gonna be Bill Bryson.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, who yeah. I
1: just I mean, he was one of the first books that just made me like laugh out loud the whole time.
0: So good. His Appalachian yeah. Trail, Notes from a Small yeah. Island. Just, yeah. yeah.
1: There was one called The Lost Continent, I think was the first one I read, where he's going around to small town America. Mm-hmm. Um, just brilliant, just hilarious and brilliant and I love Beautiful that. Running. That's a
0: great Mount Rushmore. I can yeah. I can totally see that in, in your writing. So jumping into the book, on page 22, I'm going to read a quote uh, from you to you, um, which sometimes is awkward when people do that, but no I way, think it's I a really it. great quote. Um, you say, so yes, I have known since I was little that one way or another, whatever else I had to do to make it happen, I would get out of that trailer and make a different life for myself. So I'm curious, you've obviously done that in some spectacular ways has there been any survivor's guilt? Has there been any, okay, I made it out of this thing. Um, I feel bad that I made it out of this thing. It was a goal you had. It was a desire you have. Like, how have you processed that?
1: Yeah. Oh, that's such a good question. There absolutely has been, I think it's on two levels. You know, there's like my actual family and then there's this like broader family that is the family of West Virginians. Mm -hmm. And you know, West Virginia is the butt of a lot of jokes, a lot of unfair jokes. People think they know everything that they need to know about a place they probably haven't even visited. And when I was looking at colleges, and especially when I started looking at law schools, because for college, I really only applied to WVU. I didn't, you know, even think about going out of state. But for law school, I did. And I remember my dad saying to me, you know, if all the smart kids leave the state, if all the brightest kids keep leaving, like how is West Virginia going to grow? And so there was a certain level of like, it felt like a betrayal, not only to my dad who did not want to see me leave the state and, and liked to keep me safe within this irregular heartbeat of the state boundary, but it felt kind of like a betrayal to my whole state. You know, yeah. like, oh, we raised you. You're we letting you up, down we John Denver. Everything.
0: Like you are letting down John Denver.
1: You're, John Denver yeah. personally will yeah. be disappointed exactly. in you. And uh, yeah. And so, you know, I, I do write in dirt about how leaving a place can feel like a betrayal. There was like a second cousin twice removed who I heard say this phrase once. And it wasn't even about me. It was about somebody else in her family. She's acting higher than her raising
0: which is like another version
1: of too big for your britches, I guess. Yeah, wow. And so it was kind of, you know, I say an admonishment in advance, you know, a warning shot across the bow of there, there's this implied ceiling and, and don't go beyond the ceiling. And so, yeah, that was, there was a lot of, how do you reconcile calling a place home but also making a home somewhere else? I mean, I've lived in Connecticut longer
0: yeah. than I've lived in West and no Virginia. No one at this compares point. the two. No one is yeah. like, you know what, New Haven is just like West Virginia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No one has ever confused those two locations.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. They're
0: very different. So I love there's just moments where you could see something shift, um, where somebody would believe in you. You'd catch the vision of something. I think one of them was, um, when I believe his name was Josh, a Mm -hmm. boyfriend said, hey, why don't you apply to Yale? Yeah. So, which you, you weren't even thinking about. You're applying to law schools. He says, why don't you apply to Yale? Yale's number one in the nation, law school. And the way you find out is so beautiful for your family. It's so mm. beautiful for your story. I love to watch like moments where somebody does really well on a singing show, you know, or yes. a talent show and like, and it works and the, they ring the golden buzzer the or whatever. And it felt confetti. like that. Like yeah. <laughs> I wanted oh, to cheer strange. for you when I read that story. How did you find out that you, this impossible dream, you get into Yale Law School. How did you find that out?
1: Yeah. So, um, what, like, like you mentioned to, to begin with, um, I don't, I honestly have tried really hard to remember and I cannot figure it out if they did not have application fee waivers at the time, or we just didn't know about them, but we were spending 75 to a hundred dollars per application. Which
0: you didn't have
1: which we did not have. And, you know, like you said, Yale's number one. I also had sent one to Harvard and Columbia. So that was like one, two, three at the time. Mm-hmm. And we're, you know, I'm just like looking at this, that we, I call it like rich people math or something like that. Yeah. I'm like blanking on what I even call it in the book. But it was talking about like, you have to start playing the odds about, reaching, but reaching not too high that it's a waste, but like also taking a chance on yourself. Is kind You're of like doing an ROI. Funds.
0: You're constantly doing an ROI.
1: Yeah. A hundred percent. And we were, you know, I'd done like a dozen applications at that point. I was out of money. I was out of, you know, energy to do it. And my boyfriend at the time, Josh, we were in England together doing a master's. And he said, he saw like the combination of grades and LSAT scores and all the other stuff in the story. And he said, what about Yale? And I was like, why don't you just set $100 on fire for yeah. all that? Why worth? don't you
0: say the moon? Why don't I apply yeah, to
1: the moon? Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, like I hear SpaceX is going to have a law yeah. school at some point. Let's do that. <laughs> so he actually paid the check and sent it in on my behalf, which is like, I mean, who, who has that happen in their life, you know? And like the way that one person who we don't even like end up, we're friends still, but we don't yeah. even end up together can completely change the trajectory of somebody else's life. And so we're in England circa 2002 with a little like, um, gosh, it starts with a V. I can't even think what the company's called. Like the little cell phone that's like so classic UK. Or like with the Vox little or Vodafone. something. That's it. Vodafone. That's the that's little it. like ring, you know, ringtone that's so signature. Anyway, and so circa 2002, transatlantic cell phone calls, surprisingly to no one, do not work so great. No, so not- they, they drop a lot. And we were in Cambridge uh, where Josh was getting his master's. We're watching these swans in the the river cam. We're watching punters taking their first He's row and falling tweed, into the probably wearing tweed, like
0: tweed with a little driver's cap. Is
1: yeah, elbow patches. Exactly,
0: just, exactly. The
1: swans are smoking pipes. It's yeah, just yeah, yeah, yeah. are
0: all reading C.S. Lewis. That's yeah. so good. <laughs> swans are so smart.
1: Very regal, very regal. Yeah. And so, you know, my dad calls and my dad had start. he'd like switched. He'd been like a 180 from like, don't apply to out, schools outside of the state. To when we started getting a few acceptance letters, Georgetown had come in, Columbia come in. He suddenly like had his sights set on Yale and he would, kept asking me about it. Oh, is, has Yale or Harvard called? yet? Yale or,
0: you know. I love that. So he goes from logger who wants you to stay in West Virginia to I want the best, and he wanted the best for yeah. the whole time, obviously. Yeah. But I want the best for my girl and Yale is the best and my girl is the best and let's go.
1: Yeah, I think like it just took like, I think he was just afraid I'd be disappointed. I think he was like, maybe there was a part of him that was still holding on to like, "Mm, they're all going to be no's. So do what's safe, do what's a yes. And as soon as he was like, oh, this is working, like, let's go, you know? And so he kept asking. And on that particular day, it was like the 20th time he'd asked. It was like May. I already had my housing, my financial aid at Columbia. I was going to New York, which I was not wild about, but that's another story. And, he asked, and I was like, no, they're not going to call. Like, can we please stop asking about this? Like, yeah. can't we be happy with the results we had? And he just so goes. So you
0: thought the door was shut?
1: Closed. Okay. I mean, really, truly. Yeah. Uh, I had not heard anything. I hadn't even heard waitlist. I hadn't heard yes. Mm-hmm. I hadn't heard no. I'd heard nothing. Like, for all I knew, I didn't even make it across the pond yep. to them. And so, you know, he says, he does this thing like, oh, is that a fact? That's a fact. Ah. That's a fact. <laughs> and he basically said, huh, because they called the house. And talk to your Grandma Goldie. And if you read Dirt, Grandma yeah. Goldie is a powerhouse character. She's an all amazing in character. herself. And she was trying to like strong arm them into telling her and they weren't allowed to because I was over 18. And so they had to tell me. And so for like two hours, this Yale Law admissions woman is trying to connect with my cell phone across an ocean. And the like, call keeps dropping. And it was uh, just like torture. And uh, I keep trying to call her back and she keeps trying to call me back. And she's not supposed to do this, but finally she's like, I, I can't get a hold of you. I think we were able to like find a landline or something like that. And she said, Mary, welcome to Yale Law School.
0: Uh-huh. And
1: it was just like, What in the I did not like stop shaking or, yeah. or sleep a wink that night, you know? Yeah. And it really was like if there had been a golden buzzer confetti moment, I feel like that's That's how what it felt. It like.
0: And your your yeah. storytelling's so good that it feels like that. And to go back to the kind of what your you know your dad's thought about not wanting you to be disappointed, let's fast forward to modern times. It's today. It's, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to launch something new. You're going to do something new that's brave. It's beyond what you're currently doing. And I think there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast that might go, okay, but if I hope in a big way, I can get hurt in a big way. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll mitigate my hurt by having smaller hope. How do yeah. you actively work against that? And sometimes yeah. it sounds like it's friends like a Josh that goes, hey, like we're going, like we're doing it. But how do you, looking forward at new big challenges, new big goals, new big whatevers, how do you put aside that part of you that goes, be careful. If you, if you mm-hmm. really dream, it'll cost you a lot. You'll get hurt. How do you deal with that?
1: Yeah. Okay. So the two shows that I'm binging right now, this doesn't, it matters. It comes full circle. One of them is Young Rock because I'm obsessed with Dwayne oh, yeah, Johnson. Oh yeah.
0: He's very obsessible.
1: Yes. Very obsessive. Similar, you know, didn't come from a lot, just super, super driven kind of mentality. And the other is we started watching Wall Street, W-A-H-L Street about Mark Wahlberg's like seven different entrepreneur empires that he's building. And then from that, we were so obsessed. We went back and started watching all the Wahlbergers. And there's this scene in Wahlbergers where Mark and Donnie and Paul, the like non-famous brother, I mean, he's become famous at this point, but he's the, the chef are playing basketball and Paul says, they say, oh, shoot, shoot from that range, shoot from the beyond the three-point range. He said, I don't have range like that. And Mark says to him, how do you know if you haven't tried? Yeah. And it's just like, it's so simple, yeah. but it was just like this like thing clicked in my head of like, that is the mentality that takes people from Dorchester, Massachusetts, where I know, I know you're from Massachusetts yeah. or from, you know, Hawaii turned Nashville, turned Miami, turned Connecticut at some point for Dwayne Johnson, this just like mentality of like, you say you don't have that range because you haven't tried. Yeah. And like, you will never know ah, if you don't it's try. so good. It. Yeah. And there's another scene in that show where his son is like going up for a competition and he's like studied really hard and practiced really hard. And he, it was like a spelling bee. He got out on an early word and he took him out to a dinner to celebrate because he was like, you put everything on the line. You did every ounce of effort. There's no regret. You know that you did everything you could to prepare and you just have to leave it at that mm-hmm. point. So I don't know. I mean, the short answer is Dwayne Johnson and Mark Wahlberg are giving me masterclasses and they don't know.
0: That's a great answer. I'm curious. So to that point, like the leaving it all on the line or trying your best, I think that when you're a child, you might think that's just something my parents say. It doesn't really like, we don't care if you win or lose as long as you tried your hardest. But now that I'm an adult, now that I'm in my mid forties, I'm like, no, that's actually a hundred percent true. Like if you have given it your all on a book launch, on a business starting, on a podcast, on, you know, on a weight loss, whatever, there is a really sweet permanent satisfaction of I did the thing I could do. Like, and I don't control the results, but I did the thing I can do. What would you say are some other things that you might go, you know what, as I think about motivational ideas, this one is actually true, or this one is actually helpful. Are there some that come to mind?
1: Oh, man. Okay, so I have two answers. First of all, just building on what you said about, it really, really is true. There's something so powerful about just this idea of no regrets. Mm -hmm. I think like growing up the way that I did, I had told myself so many stories about, you're not going to have a very nice this. You're not going to have a very nice that. One of them in particular was our wedding I was just convinced that for some reason that I was just going to like get married in the basement of our church. Not that there's anything in the world wrong with that, sure. but like my parents had done when they were 17 mm-hmm. and that there was, it was this mentality of you'd started with a little, so that's the limit mm-hmm. of what you can expect. And so a huge part of my life, I've I've made my decisions between behind, what does it look like not to have regrets? Mm-hmm. You know, that one has proven true. Just, I would I would reiterate that. But also one that, the second one I will say, that's painful. And I kind of wish wasn't true, but it's become sort of the mantra for our life. It's the tagline of my podcast. Justin said it to me in our first year of our business we were building. He said, slow growth equals strong roots. And it's like, man, be careful what mantras you pick for your life. Cause you, life has a funny way of assigning you that, you know, you, you will be the like underdog, 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 underdog overnight success, you know, 15 years later. And I, we always joke like, why didn't we think To say overnight is easy. Yeah, yeah, something like like, yeah, we we slingshot it into the lottery. Yeah, that's right. So, but I mean, it is honestly true. It is this idea of you have to find a way to show up and be consistent, even when nobody's clapping. Well before anyone is clapping, you have to find a way to catch the vision and cast the vision. My coach Kim and I talk about this all the time. That leaders have to go first, and that's one of our like burdens we bear is that we see it before anybody else does, which means we have to move people towards it. Yeah. long before anybody else is clapping, long before anybody else gets it, long before anybody else is like, "That's a great idea." Mm-hmm. That can be very lonely and Super very exhausting. Lonely. Super but lonely, but it's so true. But it's worth Slow it. growth, strong roots.
0: I love yeah. that. What a great, what a great answer. That relates to something that I really liked. It was page forty nine, was um, chapter three where you talk about a Mrs. uh, Barrett, I don't know if I'm saying her name right.
1: Barrett. Barrett,
0: talking Mm -hmm. about that you're actually smart. And it was one of the first (laughs) times that you said, wow, okay, maybe I'm smart. And you said, labels became a lifeline, a Mm -hmm. lens through which I started to see my life for everything that it could be and not just what it was. It started to change everything. Words have the power to speak life or death. We've talked about that. When they call you smart, you act smart. You play up or down to what is expected of you. So you encourage a ton of people, especially you work with a lot of photographers, just mm. you know, one particular category. What are the words that you speak to somebody to help them get to the next level? Because I think a lot of people that listen to this podcast go, okay, I want to either start and try the thing or I'm ready to, you know, I've done the thing a little bit, but I want to go to the next level. What are the words you speak?
1: Yeah, I think for for me, knowing all of the time that you're going to spend in those obscurity moments, working when nobody's clapping, working when nobody's paying attention, working before people know your name. You talk about speaking with John Maxwell and like the line for him, the line for you. Knowing how much time people are going to spend being an entrepreneur, how hard that is, how lonely and how many times you question yourselves. For me, it is about putting... And pointing people back to why they are doing the thing. And that's, you know, not an original idea. Start with why, Simon Sinek, what have you. But with photographers in particular, I would always say like, I'm going to be like the four-year-old in your face right now. For everything you say, I'm going to say, but why? Mm -hmm. But why? And I'm not going to be satisfied till we've gone seven layers deep. And there is like an umbilical cord tethered to what you are doing with your life, tied back to a visceral moment in your life when something mattered to you. Mm -hmm. And so for me, we did wedding photography for 15 years. And, you know, there's a photo of my grandparents, black and white, silver, eight by 10, four corners of a frame. And it's a photo that Justin took of them and they're holding their wedding photo And two weeks after he took that photo, my grandfather passed away. And it becomes in that exact moment, anybody who's lost somebody, you know, the very first thing you run to that you can still hold on to are the photos. That's like, it's like the most bizarre thing. They're here and then they cease to exist here. And the photos are what remain. And I said to people, life goes along in this very linear fashion. Even us starting this interview we can't get any of that back. It's already gone. You know, life's going along, cruising right along. That moment's gone. That moment's gone. That moment's gone. But photography and photographers by extension get to step in with our whole calling, our whole job. We get to step in and grab one of them and go, yeah, but not that one. That (laughs) one stays.
0: Come on, dude. Come on.
1: So I think when you have something like that, that drives you and wedding photography, I did it for 15 years. It can be a very you know, oh, that's the help. Oh, very thankless, very unglamorous job. But when you can see that bigger picture that long after you're gone, your work will remain. And authors get that as well. Our words will remain. Just thinking about that legacy that lives on. I think that's what most people need to be reminded of.
0: That is so good. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad we did this interview. I (laughs) think most of this episode is just me going, that's awesome. I love that. That that is so fantastic. So one of the things that um, I I love to ask is there's not a normal day. Like there's not an average day. There's not a typical day. Every day is a little bit different. But walk me through like one of your days. Like I need to block the mornings for like solitary work so that I can Mm -hmm. create the things that are then going to go out and become something. Um, And then the afternoon, I need to do social things. I need to record a podcast. I need to do some meetings. So I'm kind of learning to block my days in a half like that. But as you look at your week, like, are you a, it's Sunday and I lay out every hour? Are you a, I have rough rules I try to follow. Walk us through your process for the week and how you invest your time.
1: Yes. So one of the things that I've realized is that for me as an introvert, if I have even one meeting on the calendar, I spend, and I think all the introverts are going to say, amen. I spend all that morning, like thinking about and getting mentally ready. And you got to like, think about what you're going to wear and get showered and like hyping yourself up for it. And then like the rest of the the day, like recovering from it. And so I have found that if I have meetings, you know, like one a day, pretty much the whole week gets shot, just mentally gearing up to those. And so I have learned to block Meeting, So I have days where it's like, we'll record all the podcasts or we'll record all the interviews. It also helps with like getting showered and getting ready once. And then I need to have entire days on the calendar where there are no obligations to speak of or no meetings. And that's when I'm doing kind of like that deep work for me. It's like a deep versus wide situation. And I would do sit down on Sunday and kind of block out what that week looks like. But I would say that I start to kind of rebel if it gets a little too Carved in stone because I became an entrepreneur to set my own hours or whatever.
0: I struggle with a commitment feels like a prison. So, like Mm. even if it's a good commitment, if somebody's like, hey, you want to go skiing in six months, I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa." Yeah. Like even if it's something I love, I have to work to go, you're gonna be so glad you chose to do that. Like it feels like you can't right now, but you'll be so glad at some point that you chose to do that. So that's interesting that you block you block your day that way. I'm curious, what would you say are your hobbies? Like when you're not doing goals, you're not, you know, oh, what are your hobbies?
1: You're putting me on blast, John Acuff. E. <laughs> what is it going to be? There's no hobbies.
0: Work is my hobby. I love- you know,
1: I've been having this conversation a lot, actually, with my husband, Justin, because it kind of started out, I mean, for him more than me, even that photography was just something that he really loved. And then it became our career. And then writing beca- was like an outlet for me, something I really yeah, once loved. It, and then it once you my got career. a book deal,
0: it's a like, it's not a hobby. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I know I love movies. I love movie nights. We always walk. We live, like, we have the seawall right outside our house. We walk right by the Long Island Sound. Oh, awesome. I don't know if walking can count. Walking a 100% hobby.
0: counts. Okay, I think one of the keys walking. to the hobbies is everything counts.
1: Like, okay, yeah. Okay, good. Good. I don't know. I feel like, I don't know. Um, he's maybe going to get into gardening. I kill everything. Yeah. So that, we sit on our front porch a lot with cheese boards. I don't know if that's a hobby. That's a just, hobby too. Totally. Okay, I don't know. I need to work on it. I need to work on something, especially like my agent, Jenny, always says, if you work with your brain, Sabbath with your hands. Ah, And so, or, you know, rest with your hands. And so I like that.
0: Yeah, that's good. And I'm not, I don't have 50 hobbies. So that wasn't a hobby judgment question (laughs) um, where I'm like, that's weird. Mary doesn't have a hundred hobbies. Like (laughs) I'm I'm whittling (laughs) right after I get off this podcast to release the tension of the day. Like, no, I'm, I'm somebody who's not naturally good at hobbies. So mm-hmm. I'm always curious about that. With the follow-up question, how do you celebrate? Like when something, yes. something you crush, you get a million downloads of your podcast, whatever the thing is, you turn in the second draft of the book. How do you celebrate?
1: You know what we've gotten in the habit of doing is we get those little LaMarca splits of yep. Prosecco yeah. um, that we have in stock. And like, there's some up in that cabinet and there's like one or two always chilling in their refrigerator because they're just enough mm-hmm. for like a little glass each yep. for Justin and I without, you know, like that champagne headache sure, all sure. sugar or whatever. So it's just enough to celebrate just enough bubbly. And then you don't have like a whole bottle of oh, that's champagne great. going flat in your refrigerator. So we, I mean, getting in the habit of celebrating has become very important to me because if left to my own devices, I'm very guilty of on to the next thing. Oh, What's I'm moving, next? On. What's I'm moving next? on. I don't What's even
0: next? acknowledge that. No, like we yeah. don't have time for cake. Like let's go,
1: but cupcakes and champagne. Cupcakes and champagne.
0: I I like that a lot. It's it's definitely something I when I talk to people on the podcast, it's a question that I'm always curious about because I think everybody's everybody's answer is a little is a little different.
1: What is your answer?
0: So how do I celebrate? Well, Hmm. I took the team out for a dinner the other night, and that was a lot of fun. So I've
1: got
0: uh, four people. that I that I get to work with in town. And so we did that. And I had a big cake. So we had a big cake too. So I'm learning to do it. It's not something I'm naturally good at because sometimes I think like if I celebrate, the thing will fall apart and I don't have time. Mm-hmm. Like I gotta keep moving. Like, yep. you know, and so I'm learning to go, like, no, like this is good. Let's admit it's good. Like yeah. it's okay to be excited about it. Like, yeah. So it's not you it's a work in progress. I'd say a lot of the questions I ask are. Personal questions is like, what is she doing that I make it? Maybe I could do. Like, I wrote down Kim in the whiteboard. I'm like, I'm gonna look up Kim. Oh
1: yes, you should absolutely check out Kim in the whiteboard yeah. room. She's amazing. That sounds fan- amazing. Fantastic.
0: This has been a blast. I wanna I wanna end it with one last question. So you've got a ton of resources for entrepreneurs. Your website is really really fun. And I'm curious, what do you think are some of the biggest mistakes entrepreneurs make? You've worked with thousands of entrepreneurs. What do you feel like are the mistakes that that entrepreneurs tend to make?
1: Yeah, uh, I feel like the two that are really coming to mind right now is one is not looking at the data. Mm-hmm. And as an achiever and as a, oh, I just like to go do the things and make things happen. I have for many, many, many years considered data the enemy because data tells me I'm failing. Yeah. Data tells me it's not working. Yeah. Data tells me you're falling short or or yeah. this could you be better. You could have done more. Oh. And it's, it's painful, but like, you know, for a lot of the entrepreneurs we've coached, I'll say to them, like, what are your costs on that? And they don't know, or, you know, what's the markup on that? Oh, that's a really good question. I've never thought of it that way. I'm like, what are you talking about? You haven't thought of it that way. We've got to know the numbers. And then I'm like, oh, right. I also ignore data. So I get it. So, you know, making friends with the data, not taking the data personally, it's not judging you. It's not saying you are a failure. It's just giving you an honest reflection of what's working. And I would say probably the other one is not going into it with a mind to scale, not going into it with a mind for how this could ever happen without you there. And I just actually, somebody else who I've just added to my team, Dahlia, her whole specialty is she she calls herself an integrator. She's a system specialist. And so she's coming in. She just did a whole system for the podcast start to finish of how does this happen if all Mary does is show up and record?
0: Oh, that is good, Mary. Come on.
1: It's amazing. It's amazing. And it's not at all how my brain naturally works. So I would say if you are not that person, find that person. And Dahlia is is my person. That is is awesome.
0: An integrator. I love that. I'm writing that down. Okay, this is the other last question because I said the last one was the last question. So how would you, and this is completely unrelated, but I just love the way your mind works how would you say no to somebody who asked you to go to coffee that you didn't want to go to coffee to? Like I'm saying like you Mm. run into them, you know, you don't have the time, you know, like your friendship circle feels really full, you know, you know, and they say, hey, we should get coffee sometime. Somebody said no to me in a really elaborate way. And I was like, oh, I wonder how like now I'm curious, what's the best way to do that?
1: Yeah. Oh, that's a really good question. Is this somebody who wants to be friends or somebody wants to pick your brain?
0: Oh, somebody wants to pick my brain, forget. I got answers for that. I'm saying <laughs> like, this is somebody in New Haven that you might see again that goes, hey, let's grab coffee. And they act mm. maybe they even take out their phone. And they're like, let's, because yeah. like, let's grab coffee okay. without a phone is like, that's fictional. If somebody doesn't take out their <laughs> pocket calendar, they don't mm. want to have coffee with you. Because I don't know the answer. And sometimes I'll think, well, give me your email address because then I can tell them no via email versus like yeah. right to their face. Like, <laughs> right. so what would you do in that? What do you do in that situation?
1: Oh, you know what's interesting? Um, first of all, it's a great question and it's a hard question. Yeah, it's
0: not easy. That's that's a real hard, tough one at the end. I saved a doozy.
1: I know, you really did. Um, I feel like maybe like the old me. Okay, so you, I don't know if you're going to love this answer. So I'm just going to talk it through. We're going to see what happens. I feel like the old me would have probably but done something like, oh yeah, you know, like, getting ready to page the second book. So life's a little crazy, but like, let's find a time, you know, and it would have then just fallen off. Like you talked about, it's not real. But honestly, going back to my earlier answer, you know, just really paying attention to what people do that seems a little counterintuitive that become very successful on the show, the Wahlbergers and also Wall Street, you see regular scenes of them, like Mark sitting there, he's a lefty, signing, 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 signing over and over and over again or like going and staying till the very last guest or you know fan gets a selfie or Paul checking in with people at the restaurant and, and they talk a lot about this idea of blessing people with your time and being mm-hmm. available and not taking your fans for granted and I'm not saying this person's a fan or whatever but I, as an introvert it was very convicting for me because I tend to like really self-protect with my energy and my time and it's really hit me hard the last uh, six or seven months that I've waited a lifetime to be an author. And now I actually have author reader emails and DMs and I get overwhelmed as an introvert. And I'm like, Oh, I'll get back to that later. And I was like, you know, like slap yourself in the mirror a little bit, like buck up here, Mm -hmm. champ. You've wanted this your entire life. And now you have readers. And so I feel like I'm going a little bit on a tangent, but it's this idea of something I'm pushing myself on a little bit more is to say yes, even when I might want to say no. Mm-hmm. So that's not at all the answer you're looking for because you were looking for a no. I think that's a fine answer. But that's where my brain is these days. Probably because I would be so, I would, I would my tendency would be to say, oh, we're just in a crazy season, but let's do it yeah. soon.
0: Yeah, no, yeah. I think my version of that is I'm learning to go, I want to put real time against it. So mm-hmm. like if I decide, hey, I want to interact X amount of times a week, like and. Super serve, like not if somebody's in my funnel, but like somebody asks me a question and they say, hey, I'm a new writer because other writers answered those questions for me 10 years ago. Like, how do I say, how do I encourage somebody if somebody, you know, hits me up on LinkedIn and says, hey, here's a, you know, what does that look like? If I make time for it, then I Mm. think I can really do it, which it sounds like is the Mark Wahlberg approach. Like, it's funny how often the Mark Mark, Mark and the uh, Funky Bunch popped up on this podcast. It was more right? than I I'm telling
1: you, watch it, Wall Street. I didn't it's have a so single. Good. That
0: is such a fun recommendation. So I love that. But I will
1: say one more quick thing just to that note is when I was like 24, 25, October Sky, which is my favorite movie. It's about West Virginia. Mm-hmm. The Homer Hickam character reminds me of my dad so much. It was on TBS. I watched it my eyes out again, sat down and wrote a long, 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 long email to Homer Hickam. And he wrote back and he wrote back pretty quickly, but it was like one paragraph to my like, you know, long, long email, but it was a beautiful, very gracious paragraph. And I will just say that full circle moment, I now understand like what a gift that was, Mm -hmm. you know, because like you get those emails and people are pouring their hearts out and you don't feel worthy of like, what am I going to say back to something like that that's going to be worthy yeah. of a response to what they've just done? And so for him to like not get overwhelmed and just close it and not get back to me, but actually say something, it it means the world to me. So that's also driving my buck up and pull it together. I and, love
0: it. I love yeah. it. And yeah, Stephen Pressfield did that for me 10 years ago. I remember where I was yeah. when I got the email back. I asked him to endorse a book, and he wrote the kindest email back that essentially said, whatever else you're doing right now, quit and be a writer. Wow. And that was, and I've still got it, and I've printed it out, and so yeah, I completely. And it was a couple sentences, and he ended up endorsing the book, and it was, it was amazing. So I, I yeah. love hearing your version of that story. So, last question: Where can people find out more? I've mentioned the book Dirt. It's fantastic. It's such a beautiful memoir. It's really, really fun. It's really, really honest. We didn't even touch on how amazing the photos are in it. I think that's a whole other side of you that the photo journey through it is so personal and so perfectly timed. It's not like there's a clump of photos in the middle of the book and you're like, how do these interact? Like every photo tells an additional story. But in addition to checking out the book, anywhere books are sold, where else can people find out about you?
1: Yeah. So if you want to read a free chapter, we have that on thebookdirt.com, T-H-E-B-O-O-K-D-I-R-T.com. It is a a, a little book that can called Dirt, um, inspired from the dirt and mud on my dad's work boots. And um, you can also check out com. That's a central hub that links out to The Mary Morant Show, The Book Dirts, all the other things we have going on the blog. You can check out John's episode on The Mary Morant Show that's out. Um, that was amazing. And at Mary Morants on all the socials.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, yeah. this was a blast. I knew it was going yeah. to be. There were so many moments today in the interview where I just had to stop and go, oh, that's amazing. That is so good. Like, Yay. that's always my... My wife calls it foyer ideas, like ideas that if you came over to my house, I wouldn't let you let you pass the foyer before I was telling you about them. And there were some Whoa. foyer ideas in this episode that I just couldn't I just couldn't do anything but go, oh come on, that is amazing. So thank you that. for sharing
1: that. That's awesome. And we didn't even get into Bill and Ted. No this
0: time. No, we didn't even go on to that. And <laughs> our our episode was a blast. So I knew this one would be super fun. You're absolutely killing it. I think you're gonna inspire a ton of people. And everybody listening, go check out Dirt. I think you'll find it really encouraging. The scene alone where she finds out about Yale, to me, is worth the price of the book, but it's a whole journey about believing in yourself and people that come around you to believe in yourself. So highly recommend. Um, Mary, thanks for joining us today.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me.
0: Wasn't that a fun conversation? I loved getting to interview Mary Morantz. I have a long way to go, I think. I really feel like I do. I have a long way to go until I feel like I'm a good interviewer, but great guests like Mary make it a lot easier. Thanks for listening today. It would mean the world to me if you followed this podcast and wrote a quick review. The reviews you've been leaving have been awesome. That's it for today. See you next week. And remember, all it takes is a goal. This episode of the podcast was brought to you by MetaShare. Text John J O N to four seven four seven four seven for more information. Huge thank you to MetaShare for sponsoring it. J O N to four seven four seven four seven. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the All It Takes Is A Goal podcast and to get access to today's show notes, transcript, and exclusive content from John Acuff, visit acuff.me/podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the All It Takes is a Goal podcast.